0: You may be seated. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. not the end, not the means, but the beginning. There's a real sense of a holy fear that is significant and good and useful for the people of God. And I would be remiss to overlook this important theme evidenced in our scriptures, or our scripture readings. The prophet Malachi says, For it is you who fear my name. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. When we begin with the fear of the Lord, we are subsequently filled with the joy of our salvation. There's no skirting the fear of the Lord. If we hope to sing unto the Lord a new song, as we read in our psalm reading, then we must know of His marvelous deeds. We must set our minds on grasping these days of the Lord for which the prophet and Christ predict. We must not neglect Christ's words and warnings if we wish to practice His way. On this particular Sunday, when we're confronted with this day of the Lord, I'm reminded of what my preaching professor would say. He would say, Kalen, Take them to the eschaton. Take them to the end. Take them to glory. But at first glance, it seems more like gloom than glory, doesn't it? We are told that not a single stone will be left on this wondrous, of this wondrous temple. We're told that wars and tumult will be common and nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom that earthquakes, pestilence, and famine will occur, and that these worshipers of God will be persecuted and hated to the point of death for Christ's name's sake. But this is not a message of gloom. It's a message of glory. Why? Because Christ comes to us today in this passage both as prophet and as pastor As prophet, he foretells of both the fall of Jerusalem 70 AD and his second coming at the end of the age. And as pastor, Christ speaks to this community at the temple, doesn't he? They had been worshiping together. And he is now seeking to protect his flock. He is shepherding them. He is exposing God's word and exposing their hearts. He gives them words of caution and words of comfort he prophesies and pastors them with both the judgment of god and the mercy of god so i invite you to open up your bibles if you have them for your bulletins and let us look at this gospel reading today luke chapter 21 verses 5 to 19 i want us to consider the words of christ the warnings of christ And the way of Christ. Let us pray. Almighty, marvelous God, may we hear you this morning. However uncomfortable the feelings may be, may we hear you that we might cling to those trustworthy promises. That are in store for your people. So rekindle in our hearts, O Lord, a love for you that we might cling to you all the more readily. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So, first, let us consider the words of Christ to this worshiping community. We read in verses 5 and 6 that while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Previously in verse 3, he had pointed out that the poor widow gave more than the rich. And now he points out that even this wondrous temple will not have a single stone that will remain. Christ stands before this worshiping community and he says, things are not as they seem. He comes as a prophet. He presents a subject that's not unfamiliar with the prophets of old, the day of the Lord. Christ says, the days will come that not even a single stone will remain. The gospel is not simply good news for sinners, but God's glory and holiness manifested to all. Like a single breath may extinguish a flame, so may it ignite embers, and so will be the case on the day of the Lord. God's judgment will come. But for those who patiently endure... They will experience life, not death. We must patiently endure. Now notice how these people were speaking of the building. They were speaking in a manner that was at the very least dangerous, and at the very worst, idolatrous. They had been distracted by the beauty, symbolism, and the size of the temple. They had been led astray. The temple contained the Ark, the Holy of Holies, furniture and decorum prescribed by God. And this temple would have been associated with the likes of David and Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Nehemiah. We can hardly conceive of the rich meaning that these Jewish worshipers must have found in this temple. Still, Christ utters these words to redirect them To the gospel, to the good news. Because the true glory of a place of worship is not simply in its outward appearance, but in its inward spiritual reality. The glory of the temple is that it is the place whereby God and humanity are united. The question that we ought to always ask ourselves how does this relate to the gospel? Pick the subject. It doesn't matter what it is. Architecture, parenting, vocation, finances. How does this apply to the good news of Christ? While living in Exeter, England, Ashley and I frequently visited a thousand-year-old cathedral. A cathedral that was beautiful and ancient, grand and associated with many English churchmen that I so admired. Like Miles Coverdale who translated the psalms in the English English in the 16th century. And these psalms that he translated, we actually use a modern version of these psalms. Or like Richard Hooker, the great Elizabethan divine, as he's called, the great churchman who is probably the one who had the most influence on Anglican theology. And despite all this, how trivial and trite is this in comparison to the stumbling block of these Jewish worshipers for whom Christ speaks. And I wonder how trivial and trite are our distractions here at All Saints in comparison to these for whom our Lord admonishes. Perhaps we might do well to pause and to evaluate our own lives and to reorient our Attention to cherishing what matters, what matters most. The everlasting temple whereby the Holy Spirit inhabits. It's good to remember that God is not as concerned with the outward as much as he is concerned with the inward. Bishop Ryle succinctly puts it this way. We look at the outward appearance of a building, but the Lord looks for the spiritual worship and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we would be wise to guard ourselves from being distracted and deceived, even by these things that are meaningful, symbolic, and great in size. A church building is worthy of its purpose, no doubt, But it is good for us to frequently be reminded that the material part is far less important than the spiritual. So let us first and above all invest in the spiritual matters of God, not the work of man, the work of God, not the words of man, the word of God. Let us attend to the nature of God and his gifts for us, devoting ourselves to the learning of him and his holy scriptures and the maturing in Him through Holy Communion and community. How easy it is to be distracted with many things of a church and not invest in the life-giving ministry of the Spirit. To put it in the words of our Lord, let us settle it therefore in our minds. Let us make a decision here and now to seek first the heavenly things and everything else will fall in their place. Let us live in word and spirit. The second lesson that we should consider is the warnings of Christ. Now notice how he's both prophet and pastor. He foretells the impending judgment. He guards them from deceptions and compassionately confirms them to be dutiful, diligent, and disciplined. First, in verse 8, Christ says not to be led astray, doesn't he? And then in verse 9, he tells them not to be terrified. You see, the former warns of deception, and the latter warns of not being dutiful, like those who have no hope and promise. We should take note that the questions that are asked in verse 7 the verse before, are largely concerned with the time at which the prophecy will take place. How interesting. For they ask, when will these things be and what will be the sign when they are about to take place? You see, the motive of their questions concerns the matter of time. The time in the future that the day of the Lord will happen. But notice how Christ responds in verse 8. He says, See that you are not led astray. Jesus uses the second person plural, present active imperative. His command is not concerned with the future as much it is concerned with the present. We can diligently plan and still be unprepared for the future. Christ tells us that if we are to be prepared for the future, then we must be attentive to our Lord's presence put it in the words of Brother Lawrence, we must practice his presence. I wonder, are we led astray because of our planning for the future? It's good to plan. Christ shows us this. But is our occupation with the future at the expense of tending to the present? For when we tend to the present, we tend to his presence. Jesus says the time is at hand. Christ was present then to be adored, and he is present now by the Holy Spirit to be adored. We must always ask ourselves, do we know and adore his presence? There are sure signs that tell us if we do. Are we attentive to our Lord, his people, and his promises? If so, then we will not neglect him. We will not neglect his people, and we will not neglect his prophecies For they help us all the more readily to cling to his promises. However uncomfortable they might be when we hear them, we must not neglect them. They're good for us, and our Lord is worthy of our attentiveness. See how Christ cautions us against being deceived and demands our total attention? So let us learn of Christ's warning and pray for a humble and a teachable spirit so that we might order our lives. History proves that there are countless examples of how human pride is the folly of not being attentive to our Lord. We should take up our crosses and be present with our Lord, whatever they may be. We must be attentive to him. Now, notice how Christ not only warns of being deceived and distracted, but he also warns of not being terrified, right? Or not being dutiful. Despite the impending day of the Lord, he says, do not be terrified. He warns them of not being dutiful. The point is this, that we must not ignore overlooking, we must not ignore these prophecies, We must not overlook these prophecies. Fear is the beginning of wisdom, but not the means and not the end. Fear does funny things when it is the means and the end. It makes us forget the promises of God, doesn't it? And we cannot afford to be idle. Does not Paul warn the Thessalonians of not walking in idleness? He says... He warns them of not walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that they received from the apostles. We must be diligent, we must be dutiful, and we must be disciplined for our Lord has come and he is present through his Holy Spirit. We walk by faith and not by sight. All saints is the light of Christ, not by how well we plan to worship God, but by simply worshiping him. We must worship Him in spirit and truth. And the last lesson that we should learn is that we should consider the way of Christ. Not only is this an opportunity to bear witness, as Jesus says in verse 13, but here is a way in which you are to do it. He gives us practical ways in which we are to do it. The way of Christ is a present decision. It is a promised decision provision and it is a patient life it is about patience and living first look at verse 14 christ says that we are to settle therefore in our minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer on that day of the lord when we are persecuted not to worry and fret how we will respond when we are faced with trouble and opposition why because we are to rely upon our Lord, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Our Lord went to such lengths of being persecuted and spat upon and slain because of us. Not only was his work and reward for us, but it's also an example for us, isn't it? You see, the best way to be prepared for the future is to have the promises of God in the work of Christ ever before us. We must meditate upon what He has accomplished. The best way to endure our crosses is not to rely upon ourselves and even our own strength, but to be motivated by that heavenly vision that motivated our Lord. Yes, this isn't an opportunity to bear witness And our Lord says that we must settle it in our minds now that we will bear it. When we make up our minds that we will not seek to solve the problems that we are not meant to solve, the Spirit will give us power, love, and self-control. Not fear, but power, love, and self-control. So let us not worry. Let us not fret. Let us not carry the load that we're not meant to carry. Let us set our minds on the joy that was set before us through the finished work of Christ. I wonder how beautiful and magnificent the temple of the Lord might be if we just did not worry and fret. And Jesus tells us not to worry, doesn't he? Let us make the most of these opportunities to bear witness For our Lord. So the way of Christ is a present decision, but also the way of Christ is promised provision. Look at verse 15 and see how Christ promises to provide. He shows us how to bear witness. He says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The way in which we are to bear witness is not through our own competence. It's not even in our own discipline or dutifulness. It's by trusting in our Lord who provides for us. The reason that we are not to meditate beforehand how we will answer when we are persecuted on that day is because we're not to endure it alone. And this is why we read in Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Christ is before us. Christ is behind us. Christ is with us, and He will provide for us. He promises to provide. You see, the way of Christ is not just a present decision. It's not just a promised provision. It is patience and life. Lastly, though hated by all, we will not perish, but patiently endure and live. We read in verse 19. Things are not as they seem. Though persecuted, hated, and even killed, we will not perish. This is how we are to bear witness. By endurance, by living, we must remember the everlasting life that awaits us, regardless of the persecution that we might experience. How important this is for our endurance. Worship. Finding joy in the joy of our beloved. The salvation that is in store for us. Not even a single hair upon our head will perish. When we cross that heavenly threshold we will see clearly what this metaphor describes only in part. There will, be, there will not be a future or a past. There will not be words of warnings or words of promises. There will be no planning, no waiting, no working. For those who bore witness, for those who decided not to worry and fret about their future, For those who trusted in Christ as their provider against their adversaries. For those who knew that they would not perish, but have everlasting life. They are the ones who patiently endure. And they will be the ones who are forever crowned with glory. They are the ones who bear witness of our Lord victory. They are the ones who bear witness of a people who will never perish. If we wish to be the great shepherd's flock, then we must never neglect his prophecies. For he gives us such words of warning not to frighten us, but to fill us with faith in him. May we forever be present with him, both in this life and in the next. Amen.